I want to invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to the seventh chapter of the Gospel of Luke this Lord's Day as we return now uh, to our study in Luke's Gospel. I appreciate uh, last week uh, Pastor Nick bringing us that word from Daniel chapter 2. And now we're going to pick back up in our study of Luke's Gospel where if you've been with us, you know uh, Jesus has now concluded his Sermon on the Plain. And now Luke gives us the account of him entering into Capernaum, where he will continue in his ministry of preaching and performing miraculous works. But we will see a, a bit of a shift in that ministry now. You may remember early in Luke's gospel when we had Jesus as a, a two-month-old baby being presented at the temple by his parents. There was a man named Simeon that we believe was likely a priest and and he had been waiting for the Messiah and the, the consolation of Israel. And, and the Holy Spirit reveals to him that Jesus indeed is the Christ child. And, and he offers a, a prayer, a blessing, and, and God uses him to prophesy about the Messiah. And one of that, or a part of that prophecy, is that Jesus would be uh, taking this message of, of God's gospel, not only to the Jewish people, but to the Gentiles. And now we see the fruition of that prophecy as Luke, in the seventh chapter of his gospel, uh, now shows us Jesus taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Up until this point in the first six chapters, primarily the ministry of Jesus has been to the Jewish people, uh, but now we'll see that transition, and we'll see it primarily in today's passage as he ministers to a Gentile official, uh, to a, a Roman military leader we know as, as the centurion. And so we're going to look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and at a reverence for the Word of God. If you're able, I want to invite you to stand as I read today's passage for us. This is what Dr. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is the Word of God. God's Word says this. After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servants well. You would pray with me. 
Father, we pray today that you would give us faith. That you would strengthen our faith. That you would focus our hope not on ourselves, not on the things of this world, but entirely on our Savior, Christ Jesus, our Lord. Help us to see and savor the gospel of Jesus today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As a pastor, I often deal with situations where individuals, where families find themselves in the midst of a crisis. A sudden and often intense time of difficulty, of trouble, and of suffering. And we all know what these things are because we, we all know what it is to have a crisis. A crisis at work, a crisis in your home, a crisis in your health or in the health of someone you love. We know what it is to have these crises, crises that, that hit us and at times turn our day upside down, our week upside down. At times they turn our lives upside down. But God is not absent from these times of trouble and difficulty and suffering in our life. And we see that clearly and primarily through his word, whereas we see today in this time of crisis, he draws this centurion near. And that is what he often does in our lives. It's interesting because so often in times of crisis, we, we see that we either tend to move closer to God or farther away from God. And so today, I want us to think about that. I want us to think about when those times come in our lives, those, those difficult moments, those times of suffering, those times when our day or our life is turned upside down, which one of those do we tend to do? Do we move closer to the Lord or do we move farther away? And I want us to consider that through asking a few questions as we walk through this passage together, beginning with the first question you have there before you. Number one, when you find yourself in a crisis, where do you turn? Now, that's the first question I want us to consider as we come now to this passage where Luke introduces us to a centurion who is in a moment of crisis. Uh, we learn this in verse 2 where he writes, Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now, before we consider the crisis, just a note about who this crisis is happening to. He tells us this is a centurion. And you don't have to know a lot about Roman military structure to, to kind of put the pieces together and understand that this is a man of great authority. In fact, the, the title in and of itself tells you a bit about his authority because a centurion was a military leader in the, the Roman military who had charge over about 100 men, thus the name centurion. Uh, these were men of great means. They were paid well for the jobs that they had. And so oftentimes, not only were they overseeing this large military operation, they also oversaw large estates, estates uh, with many servants. And we know that in doing this, they operated over that, under that Roman structure, which if you know much about the Roman Empire, they were not very kind to their servants. In fact, they treated them like commodities. One 
Roman, or excuse me, Greek historian who lived about 200 years before the birth of Jesus wrote at length about this structure and about what it was. And he, he said this about these Romans who had servants who had slaves. He said that they were to essentially treat them like livestock. And so as long as they found the slave to be useful, well, that was all well and good. But when they were no longer useful, they could simply be discarded. And yet we find this man, this centurion, who seems to be operating by an entirely different, different ethic. What's interesting when you consider what we see in the Gospels about those who were Roman officials, oftentimes we see great animosity between these Roman officials and the Jewish people that they were oppressing. But Luke in his Gospel, who you remember, Luke himself was a Gentile convert. He is writing to a Gentile ruler. He presents them in a rather positive light. In fact, we see both in Luke's Gospel, the Gospel, and in Luke's writing the book of Acts, he notes these centurions often for their faith and for the ways that God uses them. And so, for example, later in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, it is the centurion at the cross of Jesus that he notes when he says, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, speaking of the crucifixion, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And then we come to the book of Acts and we read in Acts 10, Luke tells us about a centurion a convert named Cornelius to the gospel of Jesus. In Acts 21, he tells us about a centurion who rescues the apostle Paul from being beaten by an angry mob. He tells us in Acts 23 about a different centurion who rescues Paul from an assassination attempt. And later in that same chapter, about two centurions who come with their large battalions to ensure that Paul can safely stand trial. In Acts 27, he tells us about the centurion who accompanies Paul to Rome and how he treats him with respect and even follows Paul's advice when they're shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And of course, we have this, the first mention of a centurion in Luke's gospel, one that we don't see as a, as a hard tyrant ruling over his servants, but as one who seems to have great compassion. Because when this servant is found to be ill, it is noted in verse 2 by Luke that he highly valued him. And so in an age and a day and in a structure where these servants had little to no value to their masters, to their rulers, to the owners of the estate, here we have one who places great value on this servant. Now, knowing that little bit about this Roman structure, you may hear that and think, well, maybe he, he valued him as a commodity. He, he valued him as a worker. But a, a deeper study of the language here shows us that what that term highly valued means is that, that he saw him as precious, that, that he honored him. And so knowing that then, we can begin to understand why it was so troubling for him that this servant found himself to be on his deathbed. Of course, as so often we see in the gospel, we don't have great details about what this looked like, but you can imagine. And you can imagine what it would be for this centurion to, to, to come down to begin his day to meet with the, the manager of his estate and, and to inquire about this servant, this servant who perhaps had fallen ill a day or two before, to, to inquire about his health and how he's doing and to hear the report that, 
The physician has attended him. He has done what he can do for him. And he has essentially said he's going to die. And now for this centurion who cares about this servant, who, who, who has honored him, who values him, who, who, who wants him to be okay, he, he is troubled by this crisis that has come his way. In fact, the, the language here would indicate that he's rather devastated. And so perhaps he asked his manager to, to get another physician, to get another opinion, only to find the same thing. He, he's not going to make it. He's going to die. And for this centurion to exhaust all his resources to try to fix this crisis, to try to help this man, and perhaps somewhere along the way, his manager or someone else tells him, well, there, there, there might be another way. That there's this rabbi. <laughs> he's come to our town, and he's, he's different than all the other rabbis. It seems that the hand of God is on him. In fact, many of the Jewish people believe he is their Messiah. And that seems to be validated by the mighty works that God is doing through him. And then the centurion perhaps would hear the report of all these things that Luke has already put before us. A paralyzed man was brought before him, and he got up and he walked. A man who was covered in leprosy near the point of death himself was entirely cleansed by this miracle-working rabbi. It was as if he never had leprosy. And to hear account after account of miracles that had been done by Jesus. And so Luke tells us, verse 3, that when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent the, to him, elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servants. I've never been a military commander over a hundred men. I'm guessing most of you haven't either. But, but as we begin to kind of think through what this crisis would have been like for this centurion, it's not hard for us to consider what he might have been experiencing because we all know what it is to start off our day thinking it's going to go one day, one way, and then all of a sudden the crisis hits. Sometimes seemingly minor things. The, the car won't start. The, the tire's flat. Hey, it's, a, it's an inconvenient crisis that can be dealt with, but a crisis nonetheless. Sometimes it's a bit more than that. We walk into the kitchen that morning only to find our socks wet because the, the dishwasher has not worked like dishwashers are supposed to work. And and now the kitchen's flooded. Well, that's going to be a little bit more than a day to attend to. And then suddenly, everything's rearranged. Everything's upside down. But, but that can be fixed. But then there's those other crises that come our way. The things we can't just call a repairman to fix. That there's a tumor on the spine. That there's a spot on the lung. And suddenly, everything in our life is reoriented. And everything is turned upside down. And we, so often, we, we exhaust ourselves and every resource we have trying to fix it, trying to find someone who can fix it, only to find this crisis overwhelming us. 
Friends, in these times of despair, of trouble, of suffering, where do you turn? Who do you go to? We are reminded this morning that our God not only is not absent from these times in our life, He invites us to come to Him in these times in our life and at all times in our life. He reminds us that that He is the God not only of all creation, He is the God of all comforts. He is indeed our very present help. As we read in Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. And so when the crisis hits, when the the bottom falls out, do we turn to him? That's the first question for us. The second is this. When, When we do turn to him, number two, how do we approach him? How do you approach the Lord when you need help? Because we live in a, in a context where, where really this is where so many turn, both those in the church and even outside the church. Now the crisis hits, the bottom falls out, and those who have never considered praying themselves will say, would you just pray for me? Well, would you help me here? And they cry out to God. We all know what that cry of despair is like when, when we can't fix it, when we, we can't find an answer. We, we cry out so often to God. The question is, how are we crying out to Him? On whose merit are we approaching Him? Consider that as we continue now in this story when we see now the centurion faced with this crisis of his servant's terminal illness. He he sends word to Jesus. Now, you, know, you might wonder, well, why didn't he go to Jesus himself? And Luke doesn't tell us. Again, we would just have to infer and assume here it could be that this centurion, who we know from what the Jewish leaders say about him, he, he had a high regard for God's people. He would have likely been among those we refer to as the, the God-fearing Gentiles. He obviously has given of his resources to build the synagogue. He, he has a strong something here, affection, faith. We don't know quite what it is at this point. But in this, he likely is familiar with the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs and how the Jewish people see the Gentile people. He would understand the, the custom and the regulation regarding a Jewish rabbi approaching a Gentile. And how if a Jewish rabbi were to come into the home of a Gentile, immediately that Jewish rabbi would be declared unclean. His ministry would cease in that moment. He couldn't minister to that Gentile or to a Jew or anybody else because now he was unclean and he had to ceremonially be made clean. And this centurion, he's heard about these great things Jesus has done. And so perhaps out of that high regard for this miracle-working rabbi, he doesn't want to for a moment interfere with his ministry or have him be made unclean when his entire desire here is that Jesus might heal his servant. And so he's in good standing with these Jewish leaders, these elders. He sends word by them to Jesus. Luke tells us this, verse 4, that when they, these Jewish leaders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. 
I mean, you notice the way they come to Jesus is they, they come pleading the merit of the centurion. He's not just a big giver to the building fund. He is the building fund. <laughs> he built the synagogue. And perhaps they somehow in that day, ceremoniously or on the side, they had some sort of dedication, reminding the people that, that he's the one who funded this. He has done great things. He has given these things. He, 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 he. And so how many of us approach God like that? Now, I don't know that we we literally go before God and before we make a request in our time of crisis, feel the need to say, well, God, I just want to remind you, I went to the early service this week. I gave my tithe. I didn't do what all those other people are doing. I have lived the right way. And so God, take note of this because I have a need now. I don't imagine that that's the exact way many of us pray, and yet I do think many of us are faced with the temptation to revert back to, to some sort of idea, some sort of formula that we've come up with over the years that whether we say it or not internally, we have this part of us that believes, well, if I just do this, and I just do this, and I do the things I'm supposed to do, then God will do what he's supposed to do, in our opinion. If I just do this, he'll do this, and if this doesn't happen, then I must have fallen short, and if I can fix it, then God's going to do this, and we operate on this merit system. And we might not see it until a crisis comes. Until the bottom falls out. And then we look around at people, unbelieving people, worldly people, godless people, who seem to have no crisis in their life. Their health is great. They're doing well. Everything we want, they seem to have but no crisis in their life. And we've done what we're supposed to do. We took the narrow path, the hard road. Whether we say it or not, so often we believe that God owes us. These Jewish leaders, I believe that's exactly the way they're approaching Jesus because I believe that's exactly the way so often they approached God. That they believed in a righteousness of their own. That they believed that they were the keepers of the law. And they, they assigned merit to themselves. Look what we have done. And they, they wore it externally. They, they, they prayed in the temple. Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. And so it's no wonder this is how they would approach Jesus on behalf of this Gentile, irregardless of what the Gentile has told them to do. 
I think based on the rest of the passage, we can infer that the centurion did not say, make sure you tell Jesus how worthy I am. Make sure you remind him of all the good things I've done. And yet, that is what they do because that is how they approach God themselves. And yet, verse 6, we see the centurion himself. He seems to have an entirely different disposition because Jesus goes with them. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus is convinced at all by their argument. But in the providence of God and in the plan of God, he, he goes with them He's not far now from the centurion's estate. And so you, you can picture Jesus is approaching. They, these Jewish elders perhaps are, are walking before him with their, their heads held high, imagining how the centurion's going to reward them for bringing this rabbi to him. They've done such a wonderful job. They've convinced Jesus to come. They've presented the resume. Jesus is going to come heal the servants. Everything's well and good until that centurion opens his mouth. <laughs> and when Jesus went with him, he was not far from the house. The centurion sent friends saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. And so again, we, we don't know the details, but I think there's a suggestion here that perhaps word has gotten back to the centurion. Perhaps a report's come to him. Perhaps he sent servants along with these Jewish leaders, and they've now come back to him and said, well, they didn't exactly say what you told them to say, but Jesus is coming. But the centurion, he, he wants to make sure Jesus knows. No, no, I'm not worthy at all. And so now again, notice, he, he won't even approach Jesus. He doesn't want it for a moment for, for Jesus in some way to be considered unclean. And so now he sends not more Jewish elders. The scripture says he, he sends his servants, his friends, really. And these friends say the words of the centurion. He's not worthy. I mean, you see a huge contrast here, don't you? In the way these, these Jewish officials are presenting the centurion and how the centurion presents himself, they say, he is so worthy. He says, no, no, I'm not worthy at all. And, and you'll notice here how he refers to Jesus. He says, Lord, Lord. Now, that, that doesn't necessarily mean in this moment that the centurion is, is understanding the gospel and he's confessing Jesus as the Lord's Messiah. But, but at a minimum, it means he has great reverence for Jesus. And he's honoring Jesus. And he's submitting himself to the authority of Jesus. Well... 15 Bible verses about confessing Christ. If I have extra time, I'll read those to us. He says, Lord. And so again, the contrast. There are those who plead their own righteousness and their own deeds 
in their own works, and they are pleading that on behalf of the centurion. And then we have the centurion who is humbling himself, and he's submitting himself to the authority of Jesus. And the question for us is, how do we approach God? And then third, does your faith rest in the Lord's word or in your works? As we consider these things, as we think about where we turn in this moment of crisis and, and how we turn in these moments of crisis, when we come to the Lord, when we trust in the Lord, is that faith resting in who Jesus is and what he has done, or is it resting in our works and our deeds? Notice where we see the faith of the centurion resting. Verse 7. He's now sent this word to his friends, to Jesus. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But he says, Lord, he's submitting to the authority of Jesus. Why? Because he understands authority. Verse 7, therefore I, the centurion, did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. It's an amazing word when you consider it. That this centurion, who fully understands authority, and he understands what it is to be a man who has authority and is under authority, to look to Jesus as one who has all authority. Because notice what he's asking Jesus to do. This powerful centurion who has a hundred soldiers at his beck and call, who has no telling how many servants under him, who can literally, as he reminds us, say go and they go and come and they come and do this and they do it. He's looking to the one who can do what he can never do. Who can command what he can never command who has the authority to say to the leprous man, be clean, and he's cleansed, not mended, not bandaged up and on his way to recovery. In a moment, it's as if he never had leprosy. And he says to the paralyzed man, a man who was bedridden, who hadn't used his arms and legs, who knows how long, he says, get up and walk, and he gets up and walks. I mean, think about that. You twist your ankle and you get PT for six weeks. You, you, you injure your thumb opening a jar and you're in a, in a immobilized brace so that your body can heal and your body can recover. But here with Jesus, none of that. In a moment, in an instant, heal. And the centurion recognizes this about Jesus. And he says, if, if you just come in here and, and, and touch him, no. Say the word. He has faith in the word of Jesus. He believes the word of Jesus is not only powerful, but it's authoritative. And he doesn't plead his works, his righteousness, his deeds, what he did for the Jewish people. He simply says, I'm not worthy. You've got all authority. Say the word. 
verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. Now that, that phrase is only used one other time in all four Gospels to describe Jesus' reaction to something. It's used here and it's used in Mark chapter 6. And in Mark chapter 6, it's a very different situation because in Mark chapter 6, we have Jesus returning to his hometown, to his home synagogue, and preaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and the people reject him because they don't believe in the authority of his word. They completely reject him. And in Mark chapter 6, Mark tells us Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. He marvels at the unbelief of the Jewish people, the Israelites, God's people, to whom the Messiah had been proclaimed throughout generations. But they didn't believe, and, and it, it amazes Jesus. He marvels at their unbelief. And yet we see here this Gentile, this pagan, from a, a family and a culture of unbelief, he hears about the wonderful words and works of Jesus, and he has faith in the authoritative word of Jesus, and in response to this faith, Jesus marvels. It's quite a contrast. And I wonder which side of the contrast we find ourselves on today. Because we see clearly in Luke's gospel, later he'll say this, that, that these Jews here, they, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous because they trusted in their works. And yet here this centurion, he, he trusts in the word of Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't tell us the extent of that for the centurion. Well, we don't know that this is salvific. When we know that he has great faith, we know he's commended for his faith, it, it won't be until we get to eternity, to glory, that we know the extent of that faith. Was it saving faith? I don't know how this works in a new heaven and new earth, but, but if it works this way, I'll likely be looking for the centurion whose servant was healed. <laughs> I'd love to know more about this story. But, but we don't know if, if his faith was genuine saving faith. What we do know is that he was trusting in the authoritative word of Jesus. And while we can't know the extent of his faith, we can certainly consider the extent of our faith today. And so, friends, where is your faith? Is it in yourself or is it in Jesus? And, and that question becomes all the clearer when a crisis hits, when suffering comes, when trouble comes our way. Where do you turn? Do these things push you towards the gospel and towards the word of Christ? Or do you find yourself wandering away, questioning, doubting, angry, bitter? And if those things are there in your life, as so often they're, 
in all of our lives, then, then it may be God is exposing to us that we don't really trust in the sovereign plan of God. I mean, it's easy to say we trust in the sovereign plan of God when things are going well, you know. We're in the end zone, spiking the ball. Woo! It's a lot harder to do in the hospital bed. God is sovereign over both. How do we know this? The authoritative word of the Lord tells us. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and following, and we know, not think, not assume, we know that for those who love God, all things, not some things, not most things, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those who he predestined, he also called. And those who he called, he justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. We see in the sovereign plan of God, with the sovereign hand of God, he is working out these troubles and difficulties and sufferings in every single crisis to conform us into the image of his son. So that one day, we might praise him in glory even for the things that we question him for now. He continues later in verse 38, Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But when the crisis comes, what God, do you really, do you really love me? Do you really care? And the authoritative word of the Lord says, absolutely. And none of this can separate us from his love. So 1 Peter 4, verse 12 and 13, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. God has purpose and God has a plan for every crisis in your life and in my life. And the question is, will we come to Him in the midst of those crises? And will we trust in Him? He invites us to. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus offers the invitation. He says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you resting in Christ today? And that's the question for us to consider as we now respond to his word together. If you would stand as I pray for us and as we respond to his word.